Hey, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to worship as we continue together. My name is uh, John Jay Alvaro. I'm the lead pastor here at FBC Pasadena, and it's good to see you. This morning, we are in week three of a teaching focus on the book of Numbers, and that reading was from Numbers chapter six. Before we get started, I wanted to say a couple of words of welcome to everybody, uh, especially those this might be their first, second, or third Sunday with us. Uh, hopefully, you were greeted when you came in. If this is your first Sunday, one of the things we would like to know is just a little bit of information about you, but also, if you didn't stop in at the Connections desk, the little welcome desk on the way in, there's a gift for you if this is your first Sunday, or if on your first Sunday you didn't know about said gift, then you should stop there and grab it. Uh, there's also these yellow cards inside your bulletin. Uh, one side is for prayer, one side is to share some information with us. And so if you want to fill that out, you can. And uh, at the end of the service, we're going to pass offering plates. You can set that yellow card in the offering plate. If you have prayer requests that you want to share with the staff and with the prayer team, that's the place to to set them. And uh, we'll pray for them this week. Uh, And yes, if you're a guest with us, we would love to get a little information so that we can get you in contact with things that are happening around our church. You'll hear at the end of the service today when we do announcements, just all the things that are on the way. Uh, But this morning, let's keep going with the book of Numbers. What you heard read should have sounded quite familiar to you. Did that sound familiar to anybody? It's known as the, the ironic or the priestly blessing. It's the same blessing that we say almost every Sunday at the end of the service. This is a blessing that is like one of the oldest kind of bits and fragments of scripture we have. It dates quite far back. They found like scrolls and just this little bitty blessing was sort of stuffed in with all of these scrolls. And uh, so this is an ancient, ancient text, but we're going to look at it today and see if we can uh, figure out what it means for us. All right. So let's begin. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about blessings because turns out if you're going to talk about blessings, you have to also talk about curses. And that sounds super fun, too, uh, because in the Old Testament, in Torah, the word blessing shows up a ton, like in the book of Genesis, uh, and it shows up a ton in the book of Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy, it almost always shows up with its paired word, which is cursing. And blessing and cursing are not uh, terms that we... Like, blessing might mean something you say if you're from the South, when you want to be a little condescending and passive-aggressive. I look over here at Bill because he's from Texas, I'm from Louisiana, so we know the phrase, like, bless, bless her heart. It's not what it means, what you think it means. Uh... And then curses, it, likely what you're thinking of is just whatever words you're not allowed to say till you're a certain age. Um, today we're going to try and wrap blessings and curses in a very different, really probably quite foreign package around the language of uh, defilement and purity and holiness. The best way I know how to explain this to you is with a couple of stories. Uh, so when the ancients would think about the world, There was not this sense of like separation between whatever is spiritual, the realm of God or the gods, and then the realm of humans, what's material or or of flesh and blood and all of that. It was just like one world. And so if your body was ill, then that would have had some kind of correlation with your spiritual life. And if you wanted to like send somebody good fortune, you would sort of 
kind of like push this divine energy in their direction in the form of blessing. Or if you wanted to send somebody on a really treacherous path, you would sort of involve them in some kind of antagonistic divine energy that we would call something like cursing. Now, the best way to understand blessings and cursings and defilement is in uh, what we call in New Orleans voodoo. Who knows about voodoo? Boy, some people should raise their hands really excited. So voodoo or hoodoo is this sort of folk religion that is kind of interwoven in parts of, especially in parts of New Orleans still. Uh, and there is a strong sense of this kind of ancient way of understanding blessings and curses inside of voodoo theology. And like neither good nor bad. Here's the story I think about all of the time. This is uh, the tomb of this woman uh, whose name was Marie Laveau. She was a voodoo like queen, voodoo princess, voodoo royalty. Some people called her a voodoo witch. Uh, she and her daughter looked exactly the same. And so one of the things that they would do is like mom would be on one side of New Orleans and daughter would be on the other side of New Orleans and they would both appear to be the same person. And so it seemed as though uh, Miss Laveau could transport through like space and time, which really creeped people out at the time. But in New Orleans, uh, this is her tomb. And I remember visiting it on a field trip because that's what you do in New Orleans. You visit cemeteries for field trips and cemeteries in New Orleans, they're terrifying I've gotten to where uh, cemeteries are quite near and dear to my heart. We've always lived very close to one, so always our walking path would be through a cemetery. Uh, and so they've become just these really fun. But in New Orleans, they're terrifying places. Everything's buried above ground because of the way the sea level works. And there are these things called honeycomb tombs. This has nothing to do with the sermon. I just want to tell you a creepy story. Uh, there are these things called honeycomb tombs, which are like little bitty uh, slots or cells in a big wall. Uh, and you would just kind of stick the bodies in and then you'd pull them out, throw the bones, stick another body in. You'd have like 10 people buried in one tomb. Uh, but when they were empty, sadly, folks who lived on the streets, that's one of the places where they would sleep. Um, so I always had this sense that like you may never know when you encounter like a live person in a cemetery that's not supposed to be there. It's a really creepy place. But Marie Laveau's tomb, you can't see it here, but there are all of these X's that are written on it. And so the legend was that if you wanted a wish, you had a wish for a blessing or for a curse, right? Because sort of the spiritual world works in this kind of fluid way, you would go to her tomb and you would write an X on there. And you would say whatever your wish was. And then you would go about your world, your life, your day. And if that wish came true, then you would come back and you would circle the X. To let everybody know like that this sort of, that there's power emanating from this kind of person. Right? So there's X's all over this thing. That's already creepy enough. I don't play with this kind of stuff. I did not draw an X on her tomb. I did not circle an X on her tomb. But I remember a couple of years later, some vandals got into the cemetery. And they painted her tomb pink. And I don't know about you. But that sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> if you if you have any sense that like there's some kind of forces at work in the world, you do not paint a voodoo queen's tomb pink. It invites all kind of bad juju. You're wondering why we're talking about this in church. Uh, but there were a lot of circled X's, so I don't know what's going on in that world. Um, 
that is the realm of blessings and curses, of holiness and defilement, this sort of fluidity between what happens and the forces, spiritual forces that are at work in the world. The other folks who get endowed with this, not just like voodoo queens, but shaman, holy people in all kinds of regions of the world have the power to sort of call upon the spirit world to bless or to curse. The story I go back to a lot is, um, Judah, can I borrow you for a second? I didn't ask. Just come out and your help. So say Judah has, like, this is Judah, my son. <laughs> so say Judah has hurt his shoulder, right? And he doesn't know why it's hurt. It just is hurt. And so he calls his local shaman, me, and says, I need a blessing of healing. So what? A blessing of healing. Oh, you, you came prepared. <laughs> So I would, as the shaman, like one of the things I would do is I would say a kind of healing prayer, some kind of blessing or incantation. And then there is this other little trick that gets employed a lot of the time. And I asked you up because I don't feel comfortable doing this to anybody else. <laughs> but the, the, the shaman would like go to whatever the site is. So it's right here. And they would, he would uh, like, in praying would suck out whatever the illness was. Now, this is not unfamiliar to you. If you've been to a healing service, you might have noticed like preachers, you know, doing this number and sort of this physical, spiritual. Anyway, would and spit out this like bloody pulp. And, and then you would like, oh, it's all it's all better. Everything's good to go. And then I, good job, Judy. Can we all? And the person would feel healed. Uh, because there was this assumption that the shaman, this holy person, had power, and that they had just done some sort of healing ritual on this person, and there's even proof in this sort of bloody mass that has been extracted from the person. Uh, that is not a whole world different than when all of those sacrifices and offerings are brought to God in the, in the Old Testament. There, there are these physical signs that we need to bring forward, we need to see, that sort of make the power evident. Because it turns out that the shaman isn't actually sucking anything out of the skin. Uh, there's a little trick that they employ. I, I hesitated to tell you this because I wanted to see if this would work on somebody one day. Uh, but the shaman would come with a little packet of feathers and sort of like all of this stuff in their cheek. And then when they would go to suck out the illness, they would crunch their cheek skin until it bled, <laughs> get it all in there, and then they would spit it out, and it would look like a miracle. There's power in the belief that certain folks can sort of usher in the spirits and usher out the spirits and bring in blessing and bring in curses. Green mile. The green mile? Yeah, it's a similar kind of energy. Um, in my own life, I practice blessing a lot. You see it on Sunday mornings uh, with Perlman. You mind helping? Thank you. Uh, on Sunday mornings, you see blessing happen all the time from the ministers, from one another, where we will, at the end of the service, we'll offer a blessing. And this motion right here is both a physical manifestation of me moving what I hope is blessing towards you. And often you will have this motion as though to receive something physically, even though what we're exchanging is not like we can't sort of tangibly hold it. Uh, so you've seen blessing a lot, but, you know, cursing is still active in all of our lives, even if we don't fully buy into its power. So I'll tell you an example of how I have cursed people before as a point of confession, okay? 
don't use this, but where is the space where you encounter most of your enemies? It's on the 210. <laughs> yes. So I am a... Oh, yeah, there's the feathers. Let's go to the next one. Brian, can you move forward? One more. Yeah, there's the bloody pulp. One more. There it is. All right. So this is me on the 210. And I'm driving. And I drive fast enough. So if at some point uh, you'll see somebody flying up behind me. Uh, and this, is, this has happened to you too, right? You're minding your own business. You may not even be in the fast lane. But you have this car, and it's usually this kind of car. Uh, let's do the next one here. This flying up behind you. Flying. And you register it by a question because you're not quite sure what's going on. But inevitably, whether there's a lane the person can go around or not, they will just come right up behind you. So much so that you can't see their tail, their headlights. When they are so close that you can't see their headlights, that's when they are in the realm that I call sin. And that's when they have shifted from a stranger to an enemy. So what do I do? As the good Christian pastor, I give them a blessing. No. Because I am a fallen creature on the 210. Uh, I sit and I wait. And especially if they are trapped behind me and there's like nowhere to pass on the side. And I, I begin to wish for a cop ahead. And so I get them angry, right? You hold them there. And then right when they get close enough to the cop, you move. And then they take off in their own bit of anger. And they're cursing you and you're cursing them. But you have willed by whatever spiritual force you have for them to get a ticket. And if they get a ticket, it feels like the world works like it's supposed to. That there's justice. Now, y'all, listen, judge me if you want to, but you have a version of this story. And at its root, you sort of believe, like I believe, that your cursing works. Just like we hope that our blessing works. That's even worse. If it's a pastor in the car behind you. Because I just told you the story. Pastors are the worst drivers, myself included. The world of blessing and curses, it works like this. You want to be in the realm of the blessed. To be inside that space is to receive goodness and grace and mercy and prosperity and fruitfulness. All of those good words inside blessing. But there is a way to get outside of blessing into something uh, called cursed. And in the, New, in the Old Testament, uh, especially in the book of Leviticus and then also in the book of Numbers, there is this big concern for what is holy. And that holy things belong to God. And the language for holiness is that which is set apart. Particularly that which is set apart in the cursed world and brought into the blessed world. So it's really important that you're on the right side of that equation. That you are inside the blessing and not outside in the cursing. Which brings us to our passage today. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Numbers chapter 6. This is called the priestly blessing or the priestly benediction. And it shows up inside of a a set of texts that we we haven't read. We're not going to be able to preach about and study about. Let me just tell you where this text is embedded. Right before this, there are all of these instructions for purity and for holiness. Particularly for the Nazarites 
and other groups that would have been set apart. All of these rules and instructions and laws. Including like how to handle any kind of defilement that might have entered into the camp. There's been adultery, if there's been any kind of idolatry. And then all of the things that would happen in those circumstances. And so the text begins to set off boundaries of what is outside and what is inside. What's cursed and what's blessed. Then you get this blessing of the people of Israel. The priesthood is told to bless in this way. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face, his smile upon you and give you peace. And then the text says, and this is how you're to put my name on the people. So they're named as blessed. They are brought inside the circle. And then right after this, you get this set of instructions on giving offerings, on turning things sacred or consecrated. So this entire passage is how to build these kinds of boundary lines and then who's out and then who is in. And the way that the priestly blessing is described is in these highly regimented, almost kind of perfect, pure, and unified terms. Uh, even the form itself, if you were to pick up the Hebrew Bible, you would see this set off. The first line is three words, the second line is five, and the third line is seven. It is highly regimented. The first line is 15 characters. The second line is 20 characters. The third line is 25 characters. This is not accidental. This is a carefully written and constructed blessing. It is whole, has deep foundational integrity. So that when you hand it into the world, when you speak these words, they carry with them this force of wholeness and completeness. This is what you're delivering to the people. So let's look at the language for just a second together. Let's go one forward. Here we go. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh turn his face towards you and give you peace. If you are in your uh, Old Testament, you'll notice it says the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever it's written that way in English, the word behind it in the Hebrew is the divine name of God, which we set off as yod heh vav heh Yahweh is the way you might would say it, even though there's not really a way to say it. It's this sort of unpronounceable name that's deeply mysterious at its core. Moses is given this name at the burning bush. When this voice comes and says, you've got this mission that you're going to set these people free, and Moses says, well, like, who's sending me to do this? Tell me your name. And he gets this kind of answer that's a non-answer. I'm going to be who I'm going to be. I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then this language of Yahweh is spoken here. Both revealing and concealing. Part of the reason that Moses is asking for God's name is because to know the name of a God is to be able to use that name to speak blessings and curses. It's like having magical powers. It's like hocus pocus. So if you know the name of a God, you can summon that God's power in good or in bad ways. It's almost as though Moses is asking, what's the magic formula that you're going to hand me to accomplish all of this stuff you're saying I'm going to be able to do? Tell me your name so that I can utilize it in this kind of magical realm. God says it's not going to work like that. You don't have control over me. It's the other way around. But to speak this divine name at the beginning of each of these clauses is to speak that mystery and all of that power over the people. Yahweh bless you 
keep you. This language of blessing shows up in early parts of Genesis, that the world is blessed in its fruitfulness. The word blessing is applied to the Sabbath and its holiness. The word gets applied again to Noah and Noah's family whenever they leave the ark and they are told to go be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, speaking this blessing over creation. Spoken again to Abraham and Abraham's family when they're called out of their old life and into their new life. And then God says, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless everything. Make you as numerous as the stars or the sands on the shore. And not just for you, but for the entirety of creation. This word blessing, it follows Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and Esau. Follows them all the way into Egypt. In Egypt, they forget about this divine blessing, but God reminds them of it again. And when they're in the wilderness at Sinai, in the book of Numbers, this blessing is given to them in its most ordered form from the priest. And it follows them forward. Lord, bless you and keep you. This language of keeping or protection or watching. Partly because the next thing that's going to happen is a bunch of wars and battles. But also because blessing, when you experience it, can start to make you think that you earned it. And then pride can enter the picture. One of the spaces that the Bible talks about blessing in Deuteronomy, it says, like, you're going to enter the land and you're going to have everything you've wanted and needed. There's going to be plenty of everything. And you're going to think it was by your hand that you did it. And you're going to forget the goodness of your God. So in a sense, when the blessing moves towards you, you pray then for protection or guardianship that you don't enter into this kind of prideful, self-determined state. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you. There is this sort of divine energy that is present in God's gaze. It's not morally neutral. To be seen by God is to be seen by God. All the way to your core. And so this language of God's face shining on you is both good and bad, depending on where you would find yourself. So the very next line, and be gracious to you or be merciful to you. Because the hope is both that we're seen by God and that God accepts what God sees. That God's gaze is merciful and not vindictive. And then the God to turn God's face towards you or to lift God's face is the language in the Hebrew. It sounds a lot like what we talked about last week with counting. That God would lift God's face towards you and then give you shalom or peace, wholeness and completeness. That's the language of the blessing. It shows up here. It shows up a bit later from the mouth of another priest named Zechariah in the book of Matthew with what we call the Benedictus. When Zechariah says this blessing over his new son, John, who we know as John the Baptist, and then this blessing over Israel. It's just an expanded version of this priestly blessing. Jesus will say a version of it again as Jesus leaves his followers to go back to the Father. This language of blessing, it will follow us throughout the scripture, kind of hangs over the people as this promise. There are these different streams in the Torah, in the Old Testament, uh, that are, you will encounter them 
kind of in their interwoven qualities. But there are these different voices that are speaking in our text, in our Bible. Like, for instance, in our New Testament, we know that there are four different versions of Jesus' story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they have different ways of telling this story, and not all of it agrees with itself, but that's the way a true story is told from different people's perspectives. And there are these two perspectives inside of the Old Testament particularly that we would call the priestly voice and the prophetic voice. And you can feel both of these at play all throughout the Old Testament. And they are often in a bit of tension with one another. So the priestly texts, for instance, are deeply concerned with holiness, with defilement, with making sure that the right things are inside and that the bad things are outside. The book of Leviticus is almost entirely the priestly voice. This language of the priestly blessing is the priestly. Purity and holiness are the concerns of the priests. But there is this other voice in the Old Testament that we would call the prophetic voice. You hear this in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Hosea, and Amos. This recognition that there are folks who are left outside the temple, outside the gates, outside of this realm of blessing. And that God is calling these people through Israel back into belonging. So, if at any point the Israelites become so obsessed with this purity and holiness that they forsake who God loves, then the prophets rise up and their voice cries out and God says, you think that I only care about these things and you've neglected the weightier parts of the law. Care for those who are vulnerable, often understood as widows and orphans and folks who are not from your land. And these two voices, they are often in some kind of tension. Because the question that each of them asks is, what does God want from us? Is it that we stay unstained from the world, that we don't engage with people or with things that might defile us or make us impure, therefore putting us in the realm of cursing? Or what God wants from us is that we would be concerned for those who are left out of the blessing. By their own actions, by their own circumstances they have no control over, by the religious powers that be that have said this new group is outside. What does God want from us? And the way that this gets expressed between the priestly voice and the prophetic voice is what one author calls uh, the exclusion principle or the embracing principle. Exclusion belongs to the priestly class. This is what belongs, and this is what we exclude. We know what is inside because we can name with some kind of precision what is outside. And the prophetic voice has this openness and expansiveness to it and draws that which is outside in to a new kind of center. And you can feel how each of these are in tension. One of the places you can feel where this is in tension is the way that Jesus lives his life. Because there are all of these religious leaders who are deeply concerned with staying inside the bounds. Not interacting with the wrong kind of people that might make you unclean. To not violate laws that might put you outside the blessing of God. There is this assumption in the New Testament, you can hear it in all of these different voices, that the reason things have gotten so tricky and so oppressive, and the reason that Rome is in control is because the nation has not kept itself pure. 
And so if we could just get better at including and excluding the right people and the wrong people, then God will answer us with blessing. This is the language of the Pharisees in the, in the New Testament. And it is completely understandable based on the way they're reading the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. But what does Jesus do? Jesus keeps going into those spaces that would defile him. Moving into the spaces of curses. And calling those people back into belonging. You see this in his association with tax collectors, with folks of ill repute. With folks who are ill, people who have some kind of uh, impairment or deformity, which would have also put them outside the realm of blessing because their very bodies seem to evidence a kind of cursing. You can see this in a couple of different places. I'll just show you a couple. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus is healing. Heals a man who's paralyzed. And then calls a couple of disciples, one a tax collector. You don't hang out with tax collectors, they will super defile you, and then you will definitely be in the realm of cursing. And he's having dinner with them. It says in verse 10, he sat at dinner in the house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. That's also a no-no. That will get you all kinds of impure, and you will no longer be inside the realm of the blessed. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who are always watching the boundary, ask the very obvious question, why does your teacher eat? with the wrong kinds of people. Does Jesus not know that he is inviting defilement into this home, into the nation? And Jesus' answer? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus quotes from the prophetic tradition, from the book of Hosea, chapter 6. A little bit later, Matthew 12. Jesus and his disciples are there. It's on the Sabbath, and they go out and they pick some grain. You're not supposed to pick grain on the Sabbath. Violating the Sabbath is definitely a way to leave the realm of the blessed and enter into the realm of the cursed. But Jesus seems to be violating this boundary. And then a little bit later, as though to test fate, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath with a withered hand. So now you have someone whose very body evidence is a kind of cursing. And then Jesus violates a very central command to move toward healing and belonging for this person. And so understandably, the religious leaders get a little bit uncomfortable. And again, Jesus' reason for doing this is a quote from Hosea 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus understands the boundaries, understands blessings and curses and defilement. Jesus just reorders the whole thing in the trajectory of his life. I desire mercy and not sacrifice is the answer. The language of mercy is right in the middle of the priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. Jesus takes the priestly tradition and he pulls it closer to the prophetic tradition. This is the world Jesus encounters where there are certain people who for all kinds of reasons are in the realm of the cursed. Outside of the temple, outside of their religion, outside of belonging and relationship. 
And Jesus says, I didn't come for the well, but for the sick. And it turns out that when I move toward those who are ill, those who you name as impure, defiled, I don't get more dirty. They move closer to the sinner. The way that uh, Father Boyle would say this is we move toward the margins. We move toward those on the edges so that there are no longer anybody outside. We move love further and further out until the circle of belonging includes all those, even the ones that we would assume are cursed, the ones we might even name as enemy. Speaking of enemy, in number six, the blessing that's spoken from the priest is spoken over the people, over this one nation called Israel. And over time, it happens to us too, there's this assumption that's made that if God is blessing me, there's no way that God could also bless you, especially if you and I don't like each other. That's a problem. So if God is blessing me, then God's for sure cursing my enemies. You hear this language in the Old Testament. This language of blessing gets re-employed by the New Testament writers, and they say over and over again, when you are wronged, when you are persecuted for not my name's sake, do not return cursing for cursing, but for those who curse you, bless them. Over and over again, in the Gospels and in the letters that are written to the early church, this language of blessing your enemy is spoken. And if there's anyone we curse, it's our enemies. It's the person that tailgates you when you're on the 210. It's the person who's wronged you. Knowing who you can push to the outside is super important if you need to know with some kind of firmness that you're on the inside. That doesn't seem to be the way of Jesus, though. In fact, Jesus moves closer and closer to the realm of the cursed until Jesus embodies the curse. So there's this uh, other bit of kind of folklore around uh, the sort of voodoo defilement understanding of religion, which is that if, uh, if someone has wronged you and you have inside of you this like anger, if you catch it in your mouth and you don't speak it, that like the very spit inside of you will begin to toxify and you will be cursed. So you, you really got to get it out there. So you curse. Spitting on someone is a good way to show them that they are cursed. And so when Jesus moves toward Jerusalem at the end of the Gospels, Jesus moves closer and closer to the center of purity and holiness known as the temple himself stained by all kinds of wrong actions. And so what does the world do? It's what the world always does with those who are cursed. Expels Jesus into the outside places, the place of the dead, the place of the skull. And along the way, everyone is cursing him and spitting on him. The entire exclusion principle is concentrated on this one person. That same author who talks about the priestly and prophetic traditions as that of exclusion and embrace says that there is this boundary between exclusion and embrace. And it feels often like a gulf, like a chasm. 
And what does it take to get across? He says it's forgiveness. So in that space where Jesus is receiving and becoming the cursed, what are the words that Jesus speaks? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To watch this cursed principle not return that violence to the world, but absorb it. We would say to redeem it. This is what it would look like. I can't imagine what it would feel like. So Jesus, with his last bit of breath, forgives those who are present and all of those who continue to exclude, flips the entire tradition on its head. And upon resurrection, this Easter morning, gives to the world, not what the world gave to him, not more curses, but speaks the words of blessing. Becomes the high priest. And each time he speaks to his followers, blessing, it's spoken with the same kind of language. Peace to you. Peace I bring, not like the world brings it. And now you go and do the same. Jesus embodies the curse so that Jesus might embody the blessing. Moving toward that which would defile and then redeeming it from within. What Jesus shows us and makes possible is that there's no one left to curse. This is why this language of your enemy gets inverted. And if there's no one left to curse, then the other principle that Jesus shows us is that there's nothing left to fear. It is, after all, fear that pushes us to push others away. Fear that we might be polluted by some other kind of outside influence. But what would it mean to be the kind of people who aren't afraid anymore? Save fear of one. Psalm 67. Let me read this for you as we close out this teaching. Psalm 67 is a restatement of the priestly blessing. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known upon earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the nations praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let all the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, has blessed us. May God continue to bless us and let all the ends of the earth fear him. Friends and family, if you feel yourself cursed and outside the boundaries, in the realm of the dying, the unwanted, the unworthy, 
And you feel the divine moving toward you. Forgiving that which has set you outside. That there is this ancient technology, this forgiveness that is on offer, that undoes whatever you assume has cursed you. So that you may move with some kind of boldness back toward the center of blessing. And feel there God's smile, God's mercy, and God's peace. There's nothing left to fear and there's no one left to hate. May you be blessed in your coming and your going, friends. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, would you pray with me? God, we want to go where you have gone without fear of becoming sullied, becoming unworthy. Let us be a forgiving people, feeling ourselves and believing ourselves forgiven by you and by one another for all that has kept us apart. May we embrace with courage and with mercy the parts of your creation that have been shunned and pushed outside and done violence to. May we not accept that we are cursed and may we never become agents of cursing. Give us your blessing once more and make us porous so that when your blessing moves toward us that we would move it back toward the world. Thank you, God. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.